You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bo's Nose Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of the Bo's Nose Show. And I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, where we survived the snowfall yesterday. I think we got maybe an inch before it melted. But yeah, so we, we survived snowmageddon here, although we've had snowmageddon two years ago. Believe me, it was was serious. Um, but, you know, we, we do this show because we like to talk about things that are important to the community. And something's come up recently here in, in uh, Lane County that has brought up a need maybe to talk to some experts. Last week or so, the Eugene Sustainability Commission put forward a resolution that basically called for no new fossil fuel infrastructure to be installed in the city of Eugene, basically banning subdivisions from having natural gas infrastructure placed in them and new homes and businesses going in utilizing natural gas. And I wrote a fairly lengthy piece of testimony to the city of Eugene uh, explaining why that's a bad idea. Uh, and, And my testimony mostly had to deal with the fact that in Western Oregon, where we're located, um, we uh, basically have no real summer peak cooling load in our electric grid because we're fairly mild, dry summers. We don't have everybody running air conditioners. This isn't the Southeast or or Southern California where that's the peak on our electric grid. Our actual peak is the wintertime, and that occurs in the mornings. And we get this huge spike of electrical use every, you know, cold winter morning here in Oregon. In fact, that's where we set the records. And I knew that from my experiences working as an engineer at the Eugene Water and Electric Board. Because I sat, you know, as a civil engineer, I sat next to electrical engineers and I understood our electric system. In fact, we even, on the water side of the utility, designed control systems for our pump stations that would lock out the pump systems from turning on during that peak period so they wouldn't place a strain on the grid. Um, So that peak happens, and that peak gets so high that the local utilities here that buy most of their power from BPA or have their own hydroelectric projects have to buy power on the wholesale market. That's what they call spinnable peaking power. Tends to be generated by burning something with a boiler, which means that there, there's actually some kind of carbon emissions that go on that end. And when you think about efficiencies in heating, you could take 100 units energy to generate electricity, put it through the grid and every, all the losses in between, and you might get 30 units of heat energy in your home. But with natural gas, you're going to get between 80 and 90 units of heat energy in your home for that same natural gas, because there's, you know, a few losses in the in the collection of the and the energy it takes to collect and put it into the distribution system for natural gas and then pipe it to your home. But it's very efficiency burning it in your home. So basically, if you eliminate natural gas, you're actually going to create more carbon output in that peak winter months and and, and that whole peaking. And that that natural gas allows for less need of peak power in the electric grid system, which is a whole different story about how old our electric grid is getting and how fragile it is and how adding peak to it makes makes trouble. 
Well, the big issue for a lot of the folks that want to ban natural gas is not just only carbon footprint issues. The thing that comes up quite often is the big boogeyman called fracking. And fracking, of course, is short for hydraulic fracturing. So I have a special guest today on the Bose Nose Show. Susan Foster is a friend. And Susan just happens to be a petroleum engineer. And, or was a petroleum engineer, I should say. She's retired now. Um, and kind of like me, I'm no longer serving as an engineer. Uh, you know, I was an engineer, uh, and so was Susan. But you know, I just happen to know Susan, and this is a little bit of a funny story. Uh, my wife is a needlepoint person. In fact, she owns and operates Needlepoint Now magazine, and that's her business. And um, she also runs Needlepoint Tours. And Susan is a stitcher and went on one of uh, Elizabeth's tours to England. And I came along for the latter part of it and met Susan. And we actually were traveling around England and Cornwall together. Uh, and uh, that's how I got to know her talking on the bus and, and, every, and meals and found out her background as a petroleum engineer. So I don't really you know, know Susan as an engineer so much as I know her as a stitcher. <laughs> But she does have that experience, and um, I, I want to welcome Susan to the show. Um, Susan, thank you for, for coming on to talk a little bit about hydraulic fracturing. Oh, you're welcome, Jay. I'm glad to. Happy to. Yeah. So first question is, is how does somebody decide they're going to be a petroleum engineer? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's kind of one for a woman to decide that, but but two, just, you know, what, what made you go into petroleum engineering? Well, in, interestingly enough, um, I've, I've actually got one of my brothers is also a petroleum engineer, but we are fourth generation oil field. Uh, my great grandfather, my dad's grandfather on his, his father's father was a driller and traveled around West Virginia um, and probably Pennsylvania drilling. Then his father my dad's father actually was a pediatrician but in order to earn enough money to go to medical school he worked in the oil field um, and, and earned his money and then my dad was a petroleum engineer who told both of my all of my brothers I've got two brothers told both of my brothers and I that if any of his kids went into oil and gas he was going to kill us <laughs> and two of you did so we obviously listened real well to him <laughs> yeah and so you uh, attended Penn State University. I did actually. I didn't. I didn't actually mention it on there, but I actually graduated from a small liberal arts college called Juniata College first, with a degree in geochemistry, and um, that was in '82. And back at that point, you really, as a geologist, you had to have some kind of um, further degree to really get a job. So I really thought long and hard and decided I was probably more suited to be an engineer than a geologist. Ah, well, we're, we're happy you did. But in 1984, there, there probably weren't very many women in your graduating class, were there? No, there were, there were probably about four or five. Yeah, I, I graduated engineering in 1981. And I think in the entire University of Maryland engineering school, there were five women in any from freshman on through senior i mean it was it was not very many women in engineering in those days so you were pretty much a pioneer in a lot of ways um you know getting into the you know a, a heavily male dominated field um and what's interesting is in talking to you prior to the show we also realized that you know i have this connection to you with needlepoint but you have a connection with robin our, my call screener and producer extraordinaire in that Robin also worked in the oil fields, uh, not as an engineer, but as a, 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 a truck driver driving the, the big rigs um, in North Dakota in, a, in that heavily male-dominated field. And you guys both kind of share that experience. So um, small world. It is, and I would say Robin, Robin is even a more of a rare uh, animal in the field than I am because, you know, seeing, seeing women um, actually out doing field work of any sort was even more rare than engineers. Yes. So I, I, I brought you on specifically to talk a little bit about um, hydraulic fracturing or fracking, because uh, I wanted to first 
get people to understand what it is because a lot of people don't really know and, and why it gets used. And then to talk a little bit about um, the risk and the safety record in the industry and a few things like that. Um, because you, you stepped into that conversation when I posted my comments about natural gas on Facebook, you offered some very good uh, information and we had a little bit of back and forth. And I wanted to offer this opportunity for folks to, to hear a little bit. And I also want to remind folks that if you have a question for Susan that I haven't asked or just something that you're, you're dying to, to comment on, we are a call-in show, and our number is 646-721-9887. And just press 1 so that um, Robin knows you want to get in on the conversation here. It puts a little question mark up on our board because we do have people that call in to listen on their phones because they're not close to a computer. So, so please make sure you press that 1, 646-721-9887. And if you want to talk, press 1. So, Susan, just real quick, describe um, what hydraulic fracturing is and why we need to do it uh, in, in the petroleum industry. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually start with the why first. Okay. Um, and, and really the bottom line, probably the, the one word answer is, is economics. Um, I'm going to just get, bear with me. I'm going to do about a two minute geology lesson. Um, but when uh, rocks consist of um, what we call porosity and permeability. Porosity is, I mean, think of your, the pores in your skin, same type thing. It's those little, little invisible, in most cases, void spaces in the rock. Um, they can be very, very tiny. They can be huge. Um, permeability is the interconnectedness of the pores. So the first thing you have to have is you have to have hydrocarbons in that pore space but then those pores have to be connected to each other for the hydrocarbons to actually be able to flow. Um, the wells that are being fracked typically have very low porosity. Um, and when I say low porosity, what I'm, what I'm talking about is if you took a chunk of rock, about typically probably about 8 to 10% of that would be the pore space and the rest of it would be filled in and solid. So you would have very little pore space containing your oil and gas. Um, so uh, let me see. So that, that's kind of what porosity, that's kind of the geology. So the wells that don't need to be fracked typically have big pore space and they typically are very interconnected. So they have high permeability. Those are typically wells we're going to see offshore, um, Gulf of Mexico, um, up around Alaska, places that it's becoming harder and harder to actually find new sources of. Um, either it's, it's um, not allowed to be drilled there because, you know, you're not allowed to drill there, or it could just be because um, we don't have the technology yet to actually reach those um, sources of rock to, to drill to them. Um, when we drill the wells, so anyways, the wells that, that we're fracking are, are typically the shale wells at this point. Um, but those are just the, the wells that we need to drill to get the, to find oil and gas. Um, when we drill the wells, and I'll just go through that very quickly, um, as we're drilling the wells, we're going to be setting strings of casing, um, steel casing and cementing it in. So the first string is usually the um, conductor casing. That's just drilled at the very top of the well just far enough and cemented in, and that just basically keeps the top part of the hole from collapsing in when they go in to drill deeper. The next um, string is called the surface string. That's going to be drilled down through any freshwater zones. And they've already done a lot of geology on this, so they have a pretty good idea where these are going to be. So they're going to drill down through the freshwater strings. They will then pump cement down through the hole, and it will come back out around the outside of the casing, between the casing and the rock, come back up to surface. So you've got a solid cement sheath protecting your water strings. You will then drill, um, and you could have one, you could have a couple of what they call intermediate strings of casing. Those are basically just run and cemented back because you may have formations that are um, 
friable, which means that they're just going to collapse in on you as you're drilling. So basically, you're just protecting your well as you drill down by setting these intermediate strings of casing. And then the very last string that you're setting, you will drill down to the very end of the well and again, cement back up at least into the inter lowest intermediate string. And that's called the production string. Uh, the next thing that you're going to do is you're going to perforate. So obviously, if you've got steel casing and you've got cement, you have no access to the rock. So they run what they call an electric log down in, and they actually look at the formation. Um, and this is more for the vertical wells. For the horizontal wells, they really don't need to do this as much because it's, you're, you're drilling through along that, that formation that you're trying to produce from. Um, so you'll go in and you perforate, which is putting holes in where you think the most likely points are for production. And those are, those are actually going to shoot through the casing, through the, through the cement, and then a certain distance into the rock. Then the actual frack itself, you are going to start pumping um, water. And at this point, they use sand. They can use ceramic pellets um, are probably the two most common things that they use. They pump those down in, and they'll be, I think the ratio is it's about 90% um, water that's pumped down. It's about 9.5% of the sand or the um, ceramic pellets. And then you're going to have about a half a percent of, of that is going to be additives for a variety of different things. Those are pumped down at a fairly high rate of speed, fairly high pressure. And when that goes through the – hits those perforations, it's going to work its way out in and it's going to create fractures. So what you're doing with those fractures is you're actually creating man-made permeability, man-made interconnectedness pores that are holding the hydrocarbons. What the sand does is it actually stays in those fractures because once you stop pumping and stop and, and release that pressure that's on there, it's, those fractures will start to close. So the sand helps to prop them open and allows that conduit for the hydrocarbons to be produced to stay open. Then what actually allows the well to produce is um, the formations are going to be high, have a fairly high pressure. They can be over a thousand pounds of pressure. So as they come to the well bore, which is very low pressure, it's just going to allow those hydrocarbons to start flowing into that well bore. Sometimes they have enough oomph to get clear up to the surface. Sometimes you need to put some mechanical equipment in to actually help with that production. So that's long. Let's stop there and see if anybody has any, if you have any questions or if anybody else does. Yeah, so that, that the description of, of how they fracture basically and open that permeability up in in the uh, rock that that you under you know the old style um, wells where they actually were trying to drill into a pool of oil so to speak as they call it you know uh, this is more of a you're drilling into rock that has oil or gas in a bunch of little tiny pockets all through it and you're trying to fracture and connect those little tiny pockets together so they'll flow back to the well. Yeah. And that sand or ceramic uh, beads um, is what holds those fractures open to, to allow that permeability. And all that's, you know, one of the things you described was that all happens down in the formation where the, the gas or oil or both are. Um, and there's this, you know, metal casings with cement surrounding them in the formations above that so that, that that fracturing only happens where they want it to happen um and of course one you described it in a vertical situation but one of the things that's happened in in with modern technology is the ability to to drill down vertically and then turn the bit and have a horizontal um well that follows the formation um in the, in its layer and then and being able to um, gain even more access to much more of the formation and then being able to frack a much um, longer um, tube so to speak so you get more production out of the well and right it's, it's 
actually a very similar, the, the um, process is actually almost exactly the same. The biggest difference is probably going to be that you're going to um, that long um, horizontal leg in stages. So you will actually perforate first down at the, what we call the toe of the well, which is down at the very end, the furthest point. They will go ahead, perforate that fracket, then they'll set a plug, come back up to the next one, perforate frac, set a plug, come back up, and they may, they'll do as many as they need to. And then once that's all done, um, they'll let like that last stage flow back, get the pressure reduced, then they'll go in, remove a plug, let the next stage flow back, and they'll keep doing that until they have all those plugs out. But it's still the same cement case. It's still the same casing, the same cement, um, the same process of fracking. Like I said, it's just that you're doing it along uh, in stages. Yeah. And just so people understand, you know, I've, I've got a water well for my house. It was drilled down into the formation where we, you know, they just tested the water and it was good enough to drink. But the upper portion of that, that well has a steel casing that they surrounded with cement to prevent the, 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 the more closer to the surface groundwater that can have everything from, um, you know, fertilizer off my lawn to who knows what um, from getting into the actual drinking well. Um, so even this construction of a steel casing surrounded by cement is is done for drinking water wells as well as oil wells. Right. So putting cement in the ground isn't like polluting the, the, the groundwater. Just want to make that clear that that that, that activity in itself has, has no risk with groundwater or water water contamination. But, you know, I guess now um, we might want to talk about um, some of the concerns around fracking. And and so you, you heard, you know, once you're down into that formation, you know, they perforate the well and then they pump in under pressure this mixture of sand and water. And there's usually a little bit of a of, of some addition, some additives that help you know, the sand flow and a few other things. Um, and then that, after they turn off the pressure, that comes back up the well. Right. Has to be collected um, uh, and and then has to be disposed of. Uh, you know, it comes back uh, usually with less sand in it because hopefully you get some of the sand trapped in the, in the cracks holding them open. <laughs> That's the goal. Yeah. And then eventually what comes out of the well is, you know, in, in, in this case, you know, we've been talking mostly about natural gas, but it can also be, you know, oil and, and other petroleum products. Um, so one of the, the concerns with this um, is direct um, pollution of groundwater tables. You know, so one of the, you know, the, the, the big things people worry about is that somehow or another in the fracking process, you fracture through enough layers to, to connect groundwater with the petroleum layer um, in some way. Uh, and, and, that's, and, and then when they pump the fracking fluids in, they're actually getting to the groundwater table or some, some interconnection between the, the well. Um, that, from what I understand and reading um, some of the background literature, and, and one of the things Susan did for me is she found a, a pretty neutral um, paper from something called the Fraser Institute, which is in Canada. Uh, it's a think tank where they actually reviewed years and years worth of, of papers about hydraulic fracturing and the risk and all that associated with it, including EPA uh, studies, um, and kind of digested them down into what some of those those, those concerns are. And that seemed to be one of the, the least concerning things I saw was, you know, a direct connection um, because of, you know, the, the geological studies that come before they even drill a well and understanding how separated water bearing zones are from the actual petroleum bearing. Um, it, that, that hasn't really shown up as an issue um, that, I, that I've heard of uh, in any um, at least in, in reading the the studies, that that that's that's not really something you know, that that 
that you see. And in fact, what was interesting is I saw several studies that looked at um, there was actually a reduction in methane in some of the groundwater in some of the areas that were being um, had had petroleum products being withdrawn through hydraulic fracturing. And I guess the only explanation for that is that eventually methane from some of these fields does work its way up through that natural rock porosity and permeability, even if it's very, very low, and reach groundwater tables. And if we're pulling it out of that formation that underlays them, you could actually see a decrease um, possible in the, in the methane because you're reducing the pressure pushing up through the rock to the, to the groundwater tables. Let me let me just jump in there real quick. And that's a good question. I'm really not sure why it has reduced. But a lot of the, you know, because some of, some of the, the concerns have been, um, you know, we've, I'm sure most of us have seen the um, video of people lighting a match and, and lighting their um, tap water on fire because there's methane in the tap water. Um, they are able to look at natural gas and determine depth that it's coming from. So you can have natural gas close methane close to the surface in addition to those deeper formations that are being produced from. Um, they, there's a difference. Uh, the deeper gas is called thermogenic, and basically a lot of the, the um, it's, it's been heated up to a higher temperature because as you go down deeper in the well, it gets hotter. Um, the gas that's close to the surface is called biogenic, so you still can see a lot of the biological markers in it. Um, they think that a lot of that gas that's showing up in the wells is actually biogenic or shallow gas that is migrating into um, probably improperly drilled water wells um, that maybe don't have the casing that yours has in the cement. You know, maybe somebody just drilled a hole in the ground and left it open. So it can actually, that gas actually is, is mostly surface gas, surface gas when you start uh, seeing, reading about things like that. Yeah, and and naturally occurring in the aquifer that that particular well may be tapping, not not because of fracking, but because it was there in the first place. Right. Yeah, I just want to make sure that was clear, so that you know, I know they love to 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 show the whole you know tap water being lit on fire thing, but the the connection between that that um, picture or or you know graphic. Uh, you know, that you put in your mind and fracking, there's really no relation between them. Um, yeah, but, and keep in mind that most of these zones that are being fracked are probably a mile or more below the ground level. Yeah. Um, and, and there's usually what they call cap rock in there, which is what has kept the oil and gas from migrating to the surface. And the fracks, when they, when they create the fractures, those usually are designed to not go through or past that cap rock. Which is what we talked about. There hasn't really been cases shown where the actual fracturings connected the petroleum layer with the groundwater table. Right. Um, so the the things that I did see the greatest concern for in reading that literature was actually the issue of you know they drill the well, they hide, they pump the water and sand down there, then the sand and water comes back up the well you know, before they get gas back out of the well or, or, or oil or whatever it is, um, that water has to be collected and disposed of. And yes, and usually it's collected. Um, they drill giant pits. Um, so basically giant kind of great big, call them great big, huge swimming pools. And then they put um, plastic liners in that pit to contain the fluids. So you definitely do have, uh, you know, they're, they're inspected. It doesn't happen very often, but occasionally you can get a hole in that liner, which allows some of the fluid to start leaching into the ground. Or you can have spills when somebody comes in and starts to collect it and move it uh, to a different location. Yeah. And that seems to be, um, you know, a common issue for any wastewater collection um, where there is that possibility of spillage, uh, and that, and I, I see this in you know, um, you know, I was reading some 
some literature on lithium production for batteries. Um, you know, everybody's got lithium batteries now, and, and, and as they talk about green energy, one of the things that's eventually going to, you know, to take that need for petroleum for peaking away would be if there is some kind of mass battery storage that's economical and, and has the ability to discharge quickly enough to meet that peak demand. Um, and one of the minerals used in batteries is lithium. And apparently one of the issues about um, uh, collecting it and, and, and um, they don't really mine it so much as they um, take saline from uh, salt flats underneath the crust of salt flats and you know dry it out and the and the salts have enough lithium in it to process um and make make into batteries but the the great big storage areas to try and dry that brine out are just like these pits for the the waste from um fracking in that it's a a a, a potential pollutant that's being held in some kind of earthen structure uh, with liners and they, they same same sort of thing, and there's always that potential for some kind of catastrophic failure or even accident you know accident and trying to get it into the structure, accident getting it out of the structure, um, transport you know anytime you're dealing with some kind of potential pollutant as a liquid, there's always that issue of potential uh, uh, contamination and the Hydraulic fracturing is no different than a you know a sewage treatment plant or um, you know that that has drying beds for sludge or a, a you know a uh, lithium you know drying bed or you know the probably the more famous examples and much more catastrophic has been some of the uh, mining operations for uh, gold or or you know where they've had um, waste um, uh, liquid areas that have you know ruptured and 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 basically polluted entire streams. Coal mining. Yeah, 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 and coal mining same way. So it, it, it you know all those any sort of operation where you're collecting liquid waste has potential for damage to our environment, and it can be down into the groundwater table. It can be a surface water issue. Um, you're dealing with a liquid that has potential. But, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, you know, obviously, you know, some of the, the, the tailings that contain mercury and other horrible things from a gold mine are much more, you know, worse than, than I would be concerned maybe about, you know, a breach in, a, in, in the wastewater from hydraulic fracturing. Talk a little bit about, you know, what might be in that water besides the water and the sand. Yeah, there's there's different chemicals, and I don't honestly have a lot of a list of um, specifically what those chemicals. I could tell you the types of chemicals, um, the just because a lot of people may not understand the companies that drill the wells, that own the wells that are being drilled, are not the companies who also own the equipment that do the frac jobs. Those are totally separate companies. Um, I'm sure probably most people have heard of Halliburton. Probably a lot of people have heard of Schlumberger. Those are the two biggest, um, what we call service companies. Um, but um, they, each company that does the frac work has proprietary mixes of chemicals, so they don't really like to tell people what exactly is in them. But um, just just as a general, I, I just printed this out. So some of the things that they can put in, um, hydrochloric acid is one thing, and that's usually put in the hole, um, and they'll perforate through that because it helps clean out the perforations as they're perforating and keep any debris cleaned out of that. Um, they'll put in friction reducers, and that just minimizes the friction between the um, fluid and the pipe as they're pumping it. There can be corrosion inhibitors because you may want to make sure that obviously to maintain the integrity of the well um, for the however many years it produces, you don't want the pipe corroding. Um, iron control, um, biocides, because you can get, um, like I said, it's, it's as you drill deeper, your temperature gets warmer. You can get um, bacteria down in the holes, and I can 
assure you, because I've seen it happen, it's, it's if you get bacteria growing in a well, you probably, <laughs> it's kind of hard to get it to produce again. Um, so you put your biocides down there. You put a gelling agent down there. That actually, the gelling agent mixes in with the water and helps to carry the um, sand or the uh, ceramic um, pellets in um, suspension. I do know that that gelling agent is basically guar or xanthan. If you eat ice cream, you've eaten it. You know, it's um, you can put in crosslinkers again. That helps thicken the water. Um, you put in breakers. That actually helps to then once you get everything pumped down, then it helps to break down that thickening because you don't want it to stay thick. You want all that to flow back. Um, again, oxygen scavengers, pH adjusters, um, scale inhibitors, um, surfactants, which help to um, increase water recovery. So those are just the kind of the general um, examples or types of things that, that they would put down in. Yeah. So just for folks that aren't on the chemistry side, surfactants are soap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just so, just so folks know, it sounds sounds horrible, but you know, basically every every laundry soap, dish soap, you know, the soap you have in in your shower, <laughs> your shampoo, it's a surfactant. Exactly. And, and you know, if you think about it, if you're putting something in the water to make it thicker, like a gel or something like that, or surfactant, you know, is the same thing you would use to clean out your bowl of Jello uh, or the ice cream from the, you know, that had dried on the bowl, your bowl. Um, so that's one of the reasons why they use it. It helps get that gelled, that gelled water back out of the well. Um, but the, you know, you talked earlier that. Um, 90% of what goes down there is just plain old water. Mm -hmm. About nine and a half is the sand and, mm -hmm. and, or ceramic beads or some kind of, of spacer. Proppet, so, without proppet, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, then there's only a half percent, essentially, that could be these other constituents. So it's not a very, when you think of a, of a, of a waste liquid that you're dealing with, it's not a very concentrated um, uh, waste liquid and, and maybe not as, as um, toxic as some people might, you know, want to imagine. You know. Right. Yeah. yeah. And actually the, the, um, once the water comes back, um, you know, just, I think, I don't think I'd really mentioned this to you, but like I said, they, they drill the kind of think of a swimming pool and they're usually not, I think they're not shallow, like a foot or two, but you know, they're not terribly deep. So what they'll do is there's there's two different things they can do. If they don't plan on reusing the water, they will basically leave those pits open and allow as much of the water to evaporate off as possible. And then once the water is evaporated off, then anything that's left down there, and it, it would be any of these um, additives, but it also could be you know, any sand that came back, um, cuttings from the well, from the from the rock, they gather up that um, pit liner and get it all gathered up and then just bury that under the ground. State regulation. So, you know, our states have looked at that and said that is a safe way to dispose of that. With the horizontal wells, most companies are reusing as much of the water as they can. So they're actually going to transfer that water, clean it up a little bit, and then transfer it over to another well. And they'll keep doing that as much as they can. So that does at least help to um, preserve water. It's not, we're not using, um, you know, tens of thousands of gallons for every, a brand new fresh water from every single, for every single well that's being fracked. Yeah, and that that was you know I was going to get to that the the probably the, the number one concern is is some some mistake or or accident with that wastewater. The the second concern that seems to be the biggest is the actual use of water because a lot of this drilling happens in very arid regions of mm -hmm. of the world, um, and you just basically before I even got to that, talked about reuse and, and trying to reduce the amount of, of new water needed. Um, and that, that, that tends to be, you know, one of the places that there is some criticism of fracking is it, it is water, it is a water intensive, um, you know, piece of, of, of work, 
but there is the ability to recycle and reuse and 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 reduce the amount needed. So um, and it also means that you're not leaving as much waste behind or or right. waste, wasting to the atmosphere through evaporation. Right. But it does mean you're you're transporting that water in some method, which is a possibility for spills and whatever else. But uh, truckloads or train cars of, of of water, you know, I, I imagine are with uh, the minimal amount of fracking um, chemicals in them are, are probably a little bit safer than some things we see on in trucks and trains nowadays. Right. Uh, well, actually, actually, um, a lot of the horizontal wells are drilled. They they drill them on what they call pads. So you might have the well head for it can be two wells. You can have up to eight, 10, 12 wells. They're basically drilled very close together. So you're really not having to transport that water by road. I mean, it actually might be to the point where you can just take um, a hose and a pump and pump, the, let all the solids um, shift, sift to the bottom and then pump that water into a clean, a pit that's clean and then pump out of there for fracking the next well. So, you know, usually they're they're trying to do real efficiencies, which also helps because you're keeping the footprint small. I actually, the company that I worked for, um, we did a lot of drilling in um, the Wattenberg field, which is north of Denver and um, in Weld County, Colorado, and that's uh, farm country. And so, you know, the farmers obviously did not want wells scattered out all through their fields. Um, so we would drill, find like a corner of the field, and then we, we were able to put, because then you just make sure that your horizontal part, once you drill down and you kick out and start drilling along the formation, are going different directions. So you're, you're um, capturing different parts of the formation, but in a very small footprint. But like I said, that re also reduces the amount of transportation of the water. It's, it's really staying within that surface as you're drilling and fracking. Because usually what you do is you drill, you just keep shifting the drilling rig, get everything drilled, and then you go back in and just start fracking them. Yeah. yeah. And I imagine that um, this wastewater is considered um, something that EPA um, regulates and state uh, departments, environmental quality, and there's a lot of regulation about. Absolutely. About how you do it. In the, and folks looking over your shoulder and, and all that good stuff. So, um, so we, we've kind of dealt with a couple of the issues that, that people are concerned about with fracking. The, the last couple I want to talk about a little bit are noise and earthquakes because that, that you know, cause that, that, that's the other, you know, the noise that the, the, the operations have and whether that's an impact and then also whether, um, uh, you know, we're creating a bunch of earthquakes and, and you know, we're going to cause the, the big one or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, can you, do you, I don't know if you, how familiar you are with those two issues, but can you talk a little bit about those two, you know, impacts from, from the frac hydraulic fracturing? I, I can. Um, Overall, and I'm and I'm going to say, and I can't remember the results. There there were some wells in there were some earthquakes in Ohio. I don't remember whether those were caused by fracks or not. I'll be perfectly honest. I just don't remember. Overall, though, no fracks do not cause earthquakes. What have the where the earthquakes have been um, a problem? Um, so like I talked about how we basically dispose of the frack water. We basically let it evaporate. So we're really not taking it anywhere. Um, but a lot of times the wells will produce, naturally produce what we call formation water, which was water that was already in the formation before we ever drilled through it and fracked. So as we're producing the hydrocarbon, that water will come out too. So they drill... Um, water disposal wells, which are basically, like I said, those are basically for produced water as opposed to water from the drilling and completion process. Um, that is where there have been some issues with earthquakes. Um, they have apparently not done a good enough job with 
checking the geology and they have drilled those wells near some fault systems. So as you start pumping that water down into the disposal well, it goes out into that fault system and can cause an earthquake. So really what that involves is more um, just being more careful about where you put probably, you know, there may be some more regulations at this point, probably I've been out of the business for four years. I'm sure there's probably been more regulations put into place to make sure that those water disposal wells are not being put in places that could potentially cause earthquakes. Um, as far as noise goes, I mean, I, I know the company that I worked for in Colorado in general, and I'm sure this is probably pretty common in other states, is they actually require you to put up noise abatement um, walls, if you will, but things to abate noise while you're going through the drilling and the completion process, the frac process. The most noise is probably going to be during the drilling process from the drilling rig, unless it's an electric drilling rig, which um, there are. Um, the frac job itself probably only takes about maybe two days. Um, once, the, once that's done, you really have very little noise from producing the well. Yeah. So I, the issue of uh, produced water that comes from actually from the formation, um, is that something that happens even in unfracked wells? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that's not necessarily purely a, 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 a byproduct of fracking. That's just no. a byproduct of, of producing uh, hydrocarbons. hydrocarbons. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, that, that water can occur in the same formation as the hydrocarbon. And it's just a matter of you know how you deal with that water and dispose of that that excess water. What, once again, it's, you know it's dealing with a waste liquid and and doing it properly that that right. is is the biggest concern probably. And and you see waste liquids in multiple other industries. And and anytime you talk about having you know collecting something and then having to dispose of it um, into the environment. Incomes EPA, yeah, Incomes and depending on which state you're in, incomes DEQ for the state, um, and and it's highly regulated, um, and has a lot of you know best practices and and Mm -hmm. and things people can do right, but just like any industry, um, there can be a failure somewhere in that in that chain of best practices. So, uh, and that's where we, you probably would see, you know, any real concern, um, but all that can be minimized and the benefits of, uh, that we've, we've, we've gotten from hydraulic fracturing and producing, uh, hydrocarbon products for the world as, as the demand is, as, you know, is not slowing down, um, right. despite, everything we're trying to do to limit the usage um, as other countries economies are growing and maturing into industrial economies uh, we're still we're seeing i think there's prediction for a 40 percent increase in the need for natural gas over the next um, 30 years and something like 20 percent in in uh, oil products um, is predicted right even even with everything people are trying to do and all the green energy we're trying to put into the system, that's still the prediction um, that's in place. Um, and hydraulic fracturing is, is enabling us to meet some of those needs. Yeah, yeah. actually, it's, it's interesting because um, 2019, um, for the first time, the United States was actually a net exporter of hydrocarbons rather than an importer. Yeah. Which you know, some people think is a bad thing. I, I actually think it's a pretty good thing because it means we're independent in some ways, and, it, and national security-wise, that's a big issue for for you know not having to be dependent on on states that may not be the greatest actors in the world as far as exactly things they do. Exactly. Uh, speaking of being a woman in engineering, I'm you know I wouldn't want to necessarily be a woman in some of the states that we were dependent on for petroleum products over the years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Saudi Arabia, Russia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely the Middle East and 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 uh, Russia would have. Well, I don't know. Russia might not have been so bad, but certainly the Middle East. Yeah, yeah. 
So it, it I, I, I digress though. Um, so it really sounds, you know, like, you know, with, with proper oversight, with good practice and all that, it's not an inherently dangerous practice to do hydraulic fracturing. Correct. And there's this huge benefit. And as I said, one of the things that we're driving um, in our system now is this need for this spinnable peak power. And I would much rather be generating that with natural gas if we're going to have to generate it with, with any sort of hydrocarbon product. Natural gas is the cleanest, best way to do it, I think. Yeah. Much, much, much cleaner than coal. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm more than happy to displace coal with natural gas, which is what we have done in this country. We have shut down a lot of coal-generated electrical plants. We have a huge one here in Oregon, in Boardman, Oregon, that's being shut down. And what's replacing it is natural gas. Right. For that spinnable power. Um, and that's, you know, I think it's been good for the environment to do that. Uh, one of the things people don't quite understand, and this is going to probably get outside of your expertise a little bit, Susan, is I would encourage people to ha have them look up something called the duck graph, uh, or I, I think it's called a couple different things, but basically the duck graph renewable energy electric grid. You know, put those things together in a Google search, you'll find what I'm, look, what I'm trying to set, send you to. One of the things we're seeing with a lot of the renewables is they're, they come online in the middle of the day. Well, that, if, if you look, go back to my uh, Facebook post on the, on the energy curves, we get these morning and evening peaks of, of energy usage. And in the middle of the day, we actually have a drop. So what you end up with is, some, is surplus power. So they have to start shutting off a lot of other base load providers uh, into the electric grid to make room for putting in solar and wind and some of these other um, renewables. And what you end up with is then needing a huge ramp up in the evening as the renewables go offline and you need to hit that evening peak. And, and that need for spinnable peak power makes renewables possible right now. And I would much rather be providing that with natural gas even if it comes from hydraulic fracturing, than coal or oil. Because that's basically your choices for some of that spinnable power. Biomass can provide some of that, but again, you're burning something and generating you know, other con contaminants. And biomass, like coal, produces a lot of stuff you gotta scrub and clean. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and there you're looking at a whole bunch of points of possible failure and, and additional chemicals in our atmosphere that, that burning natural gas doesn't put in the atmosphere. So, um, you know, it's really a, a, a fascinating topic. Uh, you know, you and I as engineers probably could spend hours talking about it. We <laughs> have, it out, yes. <laughs> we have about five minutes left in the Bose Nose Show here. And uh, I want to thank you, Susan, for coming on. But I also want to remind folks, we, with five minutes left, you can still dial in at 646-721-9887 and just press one so Robin knows you want to get in on the conversation and and ask Susan a question or ask me a question about these, these topics and we'll have a conversation. Um, and, you know, Susan has her 30 years of experience in industry to draw from. Uh, I have my engineering experience and my, my, my education in science um, to draw from. And we'll have a conversation uh, because I think that's one of the things I really appreciated when I put that post up on Facebook was how polite and 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 nice the conversation was around the subject. Yeah, no I agree. No one went off. There wasn't a lot of name calling. There was genuine curiosity. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring Susan on the show was people were curious to understand and learn about it because there is kind of this boogeyman called fracking kind of reminds me of the, the scene in the wizard of Oz where, you know, the, the steams all and flames are shooting up and the giant faces there, you know, I am Oz, you know, 
it's really just a little man behind the curtain, you know. Right. Fracking has that image of of Oz versus the 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 little guy from Kansas that also got lost and ended up, you know. Well, yeah. and, and an interesting point, Jay, is is that actually, you know, which most people don't realize is that um, the first frack job was done, I believe, in 1947 in Oklahoma. And since then, there have been well over a million wells that have been fracked. But for whatever reason, it just really flew under the radar until they started drilling the horizontal wells. And it may be just because the size of the frack jobs was so much bigger that instead of having a dozen trucks on your location doing a frack job, you might have 40 or 50. And it's yeah. going on for days instead of a couple of hours. Yeah, and that, that's a, a great observation is just the number of wells that are in place now have been drilled and are operational compared to the number of incidents that can be tied to the industry is they've got a really strong safety record. I, I, I believe in, in reviewing the data that, you know, the, the multiple studies that went into the Fraser Institute's paper, um, there just isn't a strong um, indicator that this, this hydraulic fracturing industry with the horizontally drilled wells is somehow or another environmental boogeyman people think it is. Yeah, yes, I mean, we do need that at the Macondo well. Does everybody remember the Macondo well in the Gulf of Mexico several years ago? Yeah. That was way more of an environmental disaster than yeah. from any frack job I can think of that, that might have had something happen, something go wrong. Yeah, yeah, definitively. So, you know, I would much rather have these land-based hydraulic fracturing wells you know, than, than some of what we're doing, you know, in the marine environment. Um, you want to talk about adding huge complexities. Everything that Susan described about how you drill a well in that, you know, a couple hundred feet beneath, you know, the ocean, into the ocean floor and trying to contain all that. Um, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's an operation. And, yeah. and, and a lot of, a lot of, you know, opportunity for failure and cat and the failure is catastrophic. Uh, right. I mean, although even in that industry, that was one well out of, you know, I can't tell you how many have been drilled sub submarine uh, oil and gas wells uh, across the world. Um, it's, it, it was just the one, but it was a spectacularly huge and costly environmental disaster. Absolutely. Uh, and economic, because it really destroyed, you know, for a while. Oh, uh, yeah. The industry of, of the Gulf Coast uh, and and the, a lot of the fisheries. Um, but, you know, we haven't, you know, since 1947, <laughs> we've been doing hydraulic fracturing um, and around the world, and we just haven't seen that kind of, you know, uh, damage. And it definitely, you know, I think has proven that um, it is a, a safe way to to supply our energy needs in this country, and our energy needs are something that's you know important to have. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the p- things I haven't talked about is natural gas is a critical component in our fertilizer industry. Correct. <laughs> um, yeah, and. You know, as as people talk about the need to feed, you know, the poor and the hungry of the world, um, it's the U.S. fertilizer industry that's made our country the breadbasket of the world, and that fertilizer industry runs on natural gas. Yes. You know, it is a hugely, you know, energy-intensive uh, industry to generate that 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 fertilizer, and natural gas is 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 a large piece of that so well susan i i thank you for coming on and spending an hour with us i know you're in west virginia where it's getting to be pretty late in the evening <laughs> pretty sure you're probably going to want to get the dog walked and and uh and get... he's been out in the yard all day he's fine <laughs> <laughs> it's cold out i'm not going back outside <laughs> But uh, yeah, by the way, Susan owns uh, one of the most interesting 
breeds I, I know of, uh, uh, Bouvier de Flanders. Um, and and uh, he is, Tavi is a, a, a big, big galoot of a dog. Pretty much. <laughs> so thank you, Susan. Thank you for coming on and sharing your knowledge and expertise on the Bo's Nose Show. Um, and I really appreciate it. We'll be, ba- be back next week at 4 o'clock on the Bo's Nose Show. Who knows what we'll be talking about, who I'll have for a guest. I mean, Susan came up over the weekend as, as a guest here on the Bo's Nose Show. Um, who knows? Thanks, <laughs> Dan. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks, Susan. Everybody out there, have a great week. Thank you for listening.